Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder. We're here to entertain and educate. You know, we discuss medical topics, and yes, we have a licensed doctor. But it's not a substitute for personalized medical advice. So for any health care concerns, consult your primary care physician or a local health care provider. Now, let's dive in and enjoy the show. What's the one thing that's with us every day that we probably know the least about? Well, that's our bodies. And sure, you may know where those cute little laugh lines are and appreciate that unique birthmark you have. But can you truly say, I know my body? Welcome to Bedside Manor, the podcast where we delve into the mysteries of our own bodies with a little twist of humor. I'm your host, Eric Moore. Since 2012, I've been exploring what it means to know my body. And I've read books from Tim Ferriss, like The 4-Hour Body and Tom Venuto's Burn the Fat, Feed the Muscle. I've also read exercise guides like Gretchen Reynolds' The First 20 Minutes. But here's the thing. Books, sadly, are not enough. You gotta move. You gotta go out and talk to experts. And talking out loud about our bodies, well, it's pretty uncomfortable. (laughs) It can be downright embarrassing. And that's the reason for this podcast. And I'm introducing my friend, Dr. Robert Clem, who's a trusted expert to, you know, help me get over that uncomfortableness. And hopefully you too. And he's going to get us to discover our bodies. Now, along the way, I'm hoping you will reach out and share some of your personal stories with a little bit of humility and humor. Now, while it's serious business to take care of your body, we mustn't take it ourselves too seriously when discussing our bodies. So let's have a little bit of fun getting to know your body. This is Bedside Manor. Robert, why don't you say hello and join our conversation? Hello, Eric. How's it going this morning? (laughs) Well, I was listening uh, to your uh, focus on the word comfortable or uncomfortable, and I was thinking, do we want this to be sort of uncomfortably comfortable or would I rather it be comfortably uncomfortable? And I think I'd like the second. I think uh, we're going to talk about maybe some uncomfortable stuff, um, but we'll try and keep it comfy. Uh, (laughs) That's a lot of comfies. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, because when you talk about the human body, there are things that, you know, often aren't very comfortable to talk about or address. A lot of people don't like their bodies. Some people like it way too much, um, but most of the time it's a it's an uncomfortable topic, and um, you know I get to do, I get to talk about it a lot at work. Yeah, and I appreciate you being here. I think one way to start getting comfortable is just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a family physician. Uh, I grew up uh, on the South Shore of Long Island. I moved to Chicago when I was in middle school or so because my dad's job got transferred, and did most of my schooling uh, in the Midwest. So I went to high school and college uh, and med school all in Illinois. Uh, came out to Seattle in the early 90s to do my residency training in family medicine and OB. Fell in love with it and ended up joining a small rural practice in Southeast Alaska as my first gig kind of out of uh, training. Was able to practice the full gamut of family medicine uh, in such a rural spot. There weren't a lot of specialists around. So we were sort of forced into doing trauma and emergency room work and delivering babies who are probably at a higher risk than we would ever normally take care of down here just because there's no one else around. 
So did that for a number of years. And then when my two oldest kids uh, were getting ready to start school, we came back to Seattle and I've been uh, back here ever since for the last 20 plus years. Currently enjoy a really wonderful primary care practice in the North Seattle area, doing general family medicine and pediatrics. Kind of a luxury along the way uh, because of the towns I've lived in and stuff to be able to do a little bit of kind of radio and talk stuff as well. So it's been sort of fun to be able to not only have a clinical practice, but sort of share uh, kind of from a media aspect as well uh, to be able to talk to people a little bit more that may not always come into the office or don't have the opportunity to be able to spend a, a chunk of time because often in, in my own clinical practice, we're on a you know, 15, 30 minute schedule. And, you know, unfortunately, we're sometimes limited to the amount of time we can spend just talking about any one thing. So it'll be fun to have this opportunity to sort of expand on things that we may not otherwise get to go into depth with. Yeah, so that that's an important component to what we're doing here is getting the word out about taking care of our bodies and getting some of the medical information out. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as accessible as we think healthcare is in our country, we're not particularly actually good at it. Uh, to be able to provide a, a benefit in any way, shape or form uh, that I can, uh, I'd be happy to do, um, especially if we can sort of put a little bit of a humorous spin on it, because uh, I find in my own practice that, you know, medicine and healthcare can be way too serious. There's a lot of you know, serious things that do happen, serious illness and pathology that, you know, we have to deal with. Um, but it's always better if we can be able to to take it with a grain of salt if possible and definitely with a lot of humor. Yeah. So what keeps you coming back day in and day out to your practice? Well, I still have a child to put through school. <laughs> <laughs> There's that humor. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, uh, it's something I enjoy. I really do. Uh I'm not the world's most extroverted person in the world. Um, and so if you put me in front of a, a large group of people and ask me to be you know, sort of a social butterfly, not so much, um, but one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, particularly in a professional type of manner or where I'm trying to really help people through a struggle in their life, whether it's something physical or mental, you know, get empowered by it uh, and to see the improvement that we can help people uh, with along the way, whether it is changes to their body and their health or whether it's more uh, mental health, uh, which often go hand in hand. It's it's pretty unusual for uh, just one or the other to be happening. So uh, it's often this sort of dichotomy of what's going on in the brain affects the body and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, for my profession as a, a leadership coach, uh, life coach, um, it's often a mental component. It's a block and... I can resonate with what you're saying in that you got to talk to, and I'm pointing to my brain at the moment, you got to talk here in order to get to the rest of the body. Is is that in essence what you're finding a lot with your patients is getting over the mental block before you can get to the physical blocks? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, people come in in different places in their in their life as to you know what they're looking for. And you know, one of the common things, of course, that we would see maybe more often than almost anything is uh, people want to focus on their weight. They don't like how much they weigh, they want to lose weight, or they want to change some other type of habit, you know, that they don't like uh, in their life, whether it's they're not exercising enough, they don't like the way they eat, or they smoke, or they drink, or whatever it might be. Uh, a lot of it is change management approach to this sort of 
psychological aspect of, of what medicine can do. And so um, until people can accept the fact that they have a lot going on sort of you know, above the shoulders that's contributing to why these habits are in place to begin with, uh, we usually can't make a lot of you know, progress. Uh, often people will come in and they might be overweight and they're tired and they're not sleeping well. And they'll just say, you know, Dr. Clem, please check my thyroid level. I'm sure I'm hypothyroid. Mm. Um, and they don't want to talk about anything else. You know, they don't want to talk about, you know, that they're not getting, you know, probably adequate amount of exercise or adequate amount of sleep or they're not practicing, you know, methods that may help reduce their own stress. They just want to focus on this like one specific, very physical thing because it's easy to fix. I can take a pill for that. If it's just my thyroid that's, you know, under underproducing, I'll just take this little pill and and now I'm going to lose weight and I'm going to be happy and life will be great. That's never the case. All, almost never the case. Oh, sure. um, and so once we get that lab test back that says, oh, yeah, my thyroid is normal, then we have to be prepared to, to have the conversation. And, and that's usually the first thing I'll ask, you know, is are you prepared, you know, to have this conversation? Uh, about what it's going to take, you know, to move forward, whether it's, you know, losing weight or trying to change something else that we've been doing the same for years and years and years. Yeah. And so I imagine there's, I mean, you keep me honest here, but there's a lot of this patient self-diagnosis. They come in self-diagnose and you have to shake them of that notion. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I don't have it with me right now, but I, you know, I have this coffee mug that refers to Dr. Google, uh, <laughs> something to the effect of like, uh, Does he practice with you? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> or he, she? He, he, he or she visits me multiple times a day. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, and as I talk with my patients a lot, I mean, Google actually can be a helpful, um, you know, search engine or any, any search out there. Yeah. What I do ask patients not to do though, as much as possible is please, do not Google your symptoms. Um, what does that mean? Well, I have a headache. I have blurry vision. I have this numb spot on my lip. I have this weird itch on my leg. Because oh, if so you gonna start if you Google those, then nobody actually looks at what the first most likely thing is. I have a headache. Oh. You know, maybe I have a little bit of tension headache or oh, maybe I'm hungover. No, instantly they have a brain tumor or, you know, some other horrible, horrible thing. So often people will Google symptoms and they'll come in with this list of things that, you know, they've really catastrophized about uh, along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so I say, you know, try not to Google your symptoms. Um, once we come up with an established diagnosis, if you want to Google the diagnosis, and understand it more than, you know, what we talked about, you know, then have at it. There's a lot of great reputable um, info out there like WebMD and others that actually can provide uh, some great information on just different diagnoses. So if you're hypertension or diabetes or high cholesterol or depression or whatever it may be, uh, yeah, go ahead, learn more about it. But to Google fatigue, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that's part of what prompted our desire to have a podcast, which is, you know, I find humor in asking you some of these medical questions because I've Googled them mm -hmm. and I immediately see the humor in it. Well, you just want to see me squirm. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. Um, not because I'm trying to hurt your, 
your reputation or to challenge your intellect. But, you know, for people out here listening, we're not trying to diminish your thoughts about your condition or if you have these conditions. But really what I've always been interested in is not jumping to conclusion, but rather what is going on in my body and really slowing down and and thinking about but the body is really funny. It's just funny to me because why like why do we fart? And why does the fart have to <laughs> smell? And and you know, like why do we have the certain odors we do? And like, why do I look up in the morning into the mirror and why do I have a, a booger? And why does it have to have that particular color? And yes, I might be going into a f- weird spiral with bodily functions. With farts and boogers? Yes. But, you do, you, do you happen to have a child in yes. elementary school? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I happen to have two of them. <laughs> but your, your kids keep you honest or the children in your life will keep you honest when they ask they sure these do. questions. And so when we we quickly became friends, I was like, oh, great. I have a. I have a, an encyclopedia, <laughs> a medical human encyclopedia here. And, and so, uh, he, you know, when you brought up the idea of Googling and not going, you know, I call it doom scrolling. You, I don't know what you would call it, but like, how do we, what do you suggest in terms of, okay, we're probably going to Google it anyway, but what's a, what's a good way to, to approach that research? Once again, I would Is it keeping humor? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think it's hard to keep humor when um, you're worried about what's going on with your own body. I suspect so. Um, It's easy, you know, if we're just talking in generalities. Um, But if you are an individual person and you felt something uh, and you're scared uh, of what might be going on, Googling is not helpful. Um, I'm not sure there is a great strategy, you know, that there's no one particular website or something that I would say, if you are going to go and do it, this is the one that you should go you know, to and see as far as Googling some symptoms or something like that. You know, As we get into more AI stuff coming down the road, maybe that'll be a, a better resource for doing that. It can piece together different symptoms and come up with a reasonable sort of differential diagnosis of what might be going on. Um, but to ask Google to do that right now is, is not going to be helpful. So uh, if somebody has questions about you know, what's going on or is this serious, do I need to see a doctor about this? Is it, you know, uh, maybe I'll just Google it and see what it says. Right. Your primary care providers, including myself and most of the world out there right now, have access to electronic health records, including patient portals where you can e-message uh, providers. Um, and, you know, like everybody, I think it, there's variable in success of how great that communication works. But for the most part, it is a tool. I know we use it a lot. And so instead of just Googling something, you can always just message, you know, someone. And it's nice because it's sort of an asynchronous communication, like texting or something like that, where even though the doctor's office might be busy, we're checking those messages all day long. And if somebody says, well, you know, I have this headache and whatever, we can give them a call back and get a little bit of clarity as to whether there's something actually that we should be evaluating or just reassure them to take sort of a watch and wait approach. Yeah, I think that the advent of the internet, particularly now as AI gets, what? how might you say, not it's due, but it's certainly getting popular and it's in the zeitgeist. I'll hold on to that for now, but I want to get back to humor mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's, that's where I feel most comfortable. Well, let me rephrase it. Is there a way to introduce humor in with your patients 
a topic is uncomfortable and they're, you know, they might be evading a topic or, you know, they're lightly touching on a topic that, you know, they might be uncomfortable broaching. All the time. All the time. All the time. Okay. Um, what does that look like? So, I mean, yeah, there you have to pick your spots. If somebody's coming in and they're extremely, um, you know, sad or they're going some sort of grief, mm. probably not going to use humor, you know, in that situation as, as a best tool. But particularly since I don't know a lot of people who I'm seeing, you know, they might be brand new patients because, you know, up until just recently, we were seeing tons of new patients, uh, you know, a day. And, and even now we still see a lot of people who I may not have interacted with. Uh, and they're going to come in and ask some fairly heavy handed stuff sometimes because it's bothering them and they want some professional advice. Uh, and so I always find that one of the ways to really broach that barrier of like, I don't know you, you don't know me. You want to ask me something that you're uncomfortable with is humor. Um, and so if I can start off being just kind of really lighthearted, uh, you know, and whether it's just a joke about the facility we're in or the weather or the day or whatever it might be to kind of get started. Uh, I think to just sort of take the edge off a little bit and have uh, the patient who's sitting in front of me realize that this isn't going to be some super intense type of interview or there's something bad that's going to happen that really our goal is to be helpful. And if we can, you know, try and keep it lighthearted uh, at least in the beginning while we're trying to figure stuff out, uh, it's often helpful. Now, with patients who I've known for a long time, uh, it's a much different dynamic because uh, I'll know their history and their families and their jobs and all their relationships maybe for decades. Uh, and so it's almost like talking with a friend uh, who, yes, you can be extremely, you know, uh, sometimes inappropriate, yeah. you know, with and uh, and and it helps. Um, but anything to try and keep people, I think, relaxed in that type of setting because uh, for the most part, nobody shows up at my office on their A game. You know, there there's something going on. I mean, yes, maybe you're coming in and you feel fine and you're just there for a physical or something. But for the most part, there's something bothering you. You don't feel good or you're worried about something or we're monitoring some sort of chronic illness. Uh, and so it's not something that people are looking forward to. Hopefully, the only place more would be like the dentist. Uh, but, uh, but probably, you know, it's kind of up there that it's not on people's list of things that they really want to do is come chit chat with me. And so, uh, if they know that they do come, that it's going to be an okay experience that we're going to try and have a little fun along the way. Um, they're more likely one to show up and two to talk about what they need to talk about. Yeah. That seems like a reasonable approach because you know, they're a stranger to you and you're trying to find roads inward to bring them out. Is are there a set of common medical issues. I don't know if issues is the right word, but they're afraid to talk about that you have to tease out top three. Is it, is it weight? Is it a heart issue? Top three things that people should talk about that they don't want yes, to. Yes, Correct. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, let's start with men. Sure. Let's do it. You, by the you, you might imagine I could probably give you one guess as to what topic do men come in to talk about that they don't want to talk about? Uh, maybe it's their Uncle Ed? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> E.D. Ed. <laughs> Is that uh, Uncle Ed? Or yeah. What was that show with the talking horse? Yes, that was Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed. Yeah. Mr. Ed, that's it. <laughs> Wilbur. <laughs> wow. That could go in so many places. <laughs> Could, could the penis sound like that? <laughs> well, 
Yes, the comedy okay. has started, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, sexual, sexual dysfunction. Sexual dysfunction, either lack of sex drive or inability to get an erection, yeah. is the most uncomfortable topic for men to come in with. And often, it's frustrating because they won't even tell us that that's what they're coming in for. Oh, I see. They call the office or they go online to schedule an appointment and it'll say, shoulder pain. I'm coming in to talk about shoulder pain. Oh, wow. Like, and not even. Nothing close. Really. No. Shoulder pain or whatever. I got a wart. Who knows? Anything. They check in, they tell the front desk that, they get roomed, and they tell the medical assistant that. And so I walk in, I'm like, okay, you know, let's take a look at your shoulder. And they're like, uh, that's not really what I'm here for. Oh, so uh, they do actually pivot the discussion. Sometimes. In that situation, if that's really, like, they know that that's what they're there for, and that's what they want to talk about. Uh, but they were just embarrassed to maybe mention it to a woman because most of the I see. the caregivers, the staff that are they at our take. place are women. Yeah. And often men are uncomfortable in talking to you know a woman about ED or any kind of sexual dysfunction. And so they'll wait till I'm there to, to bring it up. So are, wait, I want to stop there for just a okay. second. Mm. My humor brain is kicking in. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, and I don't mean to be, belittle it, and maybe that's the bad choice of words there. <laughs> We're talking about, <laughs> but I can. I, I'm trying to figure out what what do they think would happen? Is the nurse is going to go? I, you know, I'm wondering what's in their head at that moment. And I know, again, that must be a scary thing to have to raise. But um, has any of the patients shared with you why they were afraid to share it at all? Uh, I don't know if I've delved into that. I just sort of give them the respect that they're allowed to to be embarrassed, I guess. Yeah. We um, do reassure them that, you know, once they bring it up, that it's phenomenally common. Common. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so normal. Continue. And I would say they probably just don't want to share out of embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, that they feel sort of less a man and there's such a stigma on sexual function that, yes. you know, if Absolutely. somehow I'm going to admit to this, you know, person that, I can't do this correctly or whatever it might be that somehow I'm less of a person or I'm less of a man or something like that. Yeah, my humor brain would be like, I've seen some of the nurses. I would probably have ED too. Careful. <laughs> Careful. I love my staff. Not your staff. Let me be clear. If anybody who works with me is listening to this, you're all beautiful yes, and not awesome. not your staff. <laughs> and there again, we're using the word staff and ED. <laughs> this is, this is going to go for a while, isn't yeah. it? No, but see, uh, when we can sort of step back and just get the humor out of this, we can start to get to the real stuff. Mm-hmm. So they come in, they talk about a shoulder and then, the gentleman in this scenario can pivot and say, okay, doc, really, uh, it's down here. Yeah. And what happens then? Then we take a history just like we would, you know, related to anything else. Um, you know, like most things uh, in the body, there's multiple different aspects of what could be causing it. And when you talk about sexual function, there's probably no more complex process that has to happen in the body than that. Because uh, it involves getting an erection, you mean completing the sex act oh, uh, you mean, itself, so getting aroused, intercourse itself, then ejaculating and then tumescence. I like your terminology. Yes. That, uh, like all <laughs> so, of that is the, uh, a complex. 
Yeah. So the, the complex thing is really is going from unaroused to aroused and completing, you know, to full climax. Um, because so it, wait, it, I want mm-hmm. men to take note of this, like, and women too. That's very complex for us to do, ladies. So we should be rewarded. <laughs> like, please understand. It's it's you, a lot of ladies do think, oh, well, guys, you just get going and then you're done. But it sounds like it's a very complex physiological event. Absolutely neuropsychological, uh, because or it neuropsychological. Because not only does it involve you know the endocrine system, which is your hormonal system, so you have to be producing testosterone and other hormones, you know, at normal levels, but you need your cardiovascular system to be pumping blood properly. It needs to be to stay in that area. So you need, you know, to have that kind of venous system working properly as well. You need normal sensation, neurological sensation, touch sensation to be, you know, aroused to be able to make it work, you know, properly as well. Um, And from a psychological standpoint, there's probably no bigger component to sexual function or dysfunction than sort of what's between your ears, Um, because we talk over and over again. Once um, a person, whether it's a man or a woman, starts kind of losing the intimacy of where they're at, um, you know, the, the partner who they're with and focus on whether they'll actually be able to perform the act, they're done. Uh, once you get out of that moment, it's really, really difficult to recover, uh, often from. So if there's a man who's experienced, you know, erectile dysfunction, it is, you know, they really couldn't get an erection for whatever reason. And then, you know, they're, uh, you know, they try and, and have sex as soon as they start thinking about, Hmm, I wonder if I'm going to, if this is going to happen to me again, it does. And so, so they're out of the zone. Yep. So you need your brain to be engaged uh, and in the moment, uh, not worrying about, you know, whether you're going to be successful about it or not. So it, it's very, very complex. So you need hormones to working, you need blood vessels working, you need your brain and neurotransmitters working, you know, all of it's got to be going. Uh, and if any one component of that gets screwed up along the way, then you're kind of cooked. Okay. So let's move over to uh, women. What's uh, a common ailment or issue that they come in for, but aren't forthright, say, like a a man in his shoulder? Yeah, women do not come in for, at least to talk to me, maybe they do to to female providers Mm. more, um, but it wouldn't be sexual dysfunction, you know, nearly as much uh, as it is for men. Sure. Um, I would say probably the the leading reason why women would come in for something that they don't necessarily want to address would be weight uh, related issues. Uh, And, you know, we could probably unpack that for many shows, you know, to come as to sort of the societal and self-inflicted. But they have come in um, to you for that, but in a securitous way? Correct. Yeah, Yeah. I see. And what what does that look like in, in your experience? It's usually not even something that necessarily is on their radar, but they're focused on the symptoms related to being overweight. So for instance, back pain, um, or knee pain, uh, or, um, tired, uh, or any number of uh, other types of sort of more vague, um, concerns that ultimately have to tie back, not necessarily maybe with weight, but at least physical fitness, you know, in general, which often the, the two will go hand in hand. If somebody's not physically fit, they'll often be overweight. And so if somebody is extremely overweight, 
then their ability to be able to re-engage with normal daily exercise and you know healthy living gets incredibly difficult because it gets painful to to get back into that I see cycle. so because because in in the circumstances that you're describing if like the knees are hurting or the back is hurting it's because of the extra weight right and they're not making that connection correct I see or they have made the connection they're like okay I want to try and exercise but when they do that it hurts uh, um, and yeah. so it creates this sort of negative feedback loop where you're disincentivized to to want to do the thing that's going to be helpful and so they don't come in saying hey I want to lose weight um, but they're like, hey, I tried to exercise and now my back hurts. And so, you know, we may end up getting it to it in a roundabout way. What about children? I'm going to make an assumption here, but I imagine with some kids, they might not be articulate enough to tell you what's ailing them. Um, how do you get them to open up to you and get to what they're looking for? Or is it, is it just easier because the parents are there and they're able to articulate? No, that's the harder part. If I had kids in the room without the parents, it would be a very easy fix. Oh, okay. So tell me, let's, let's explore that a little bit. Um, no, I mean, kids are, I mean, depending on the age of the kids, let's say, let's talk about sort of um, kind of primary school age kids, sure. you know, yeah. like before they get to middle school or high school where things change once you hit sort of puberty and early adulthood. Um, but sort of in these... Um, you know, kids who are talking, you know, so after age two or three and up to about age 12, um, they're perfectly able to articulate what they feel. Um, and so this hurts, this doesn't hurt. I feel mad. I feel sad. I'm happy or whatever. They're, they're very good at that. And so often if I can isolate them to be able to just tell me what's going on without having parents necessarily giving their influence uh, to mm -hmm. the conversation, uh, it can be more helpful. So um, because there's a lot that's going on, of course, between that parent child relationship and depending on what the parent is bringing the kid in for, there may be sort of guilt associated with some of it. There may be shame associated with some of it. Like, why is it my kid good enough at school or why is my kid overweight or why is my kid not athletic in this sort of way or why do they, you know, continually say they can't hear me or you know, whatever it might be? The reason why the parent is bringing them in may be different necessarily than the than the medical issue at hand. Um, and so sort of dissecting away what that complex relationship overlay might be can sometimes be important. Uh, so um, often I'll try and, and get the kids to tell me just in their own words uh, and ask the parents to at least initially to to be quiet uh, and to let their kids talk as to what's going on um, because you'll find out an awful lot. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, that's irrelevant. I mean, if they're just coming in for an ear infection, then yes, the parents can tell me, you know, Johnny's ear is hurting yeah. uh, and they'll be like, yeah, my ear hurts. Um, but if it's, if there's something else going on, like parents are concerned about ADHD or, you know, depression or something else in a, in a child, um, then we really do need to, to spend a fair amount of time with the kid without an outside influence, even their parents, uh, to get an understanding as to what's going on. Right, because those are a little bit more nuanced than, say, a earache. And, yeah, absolutely. And an ailment. <clears throat> and so uh, back to the you know humor side, I imagine kids ask you some pretty funny questions about their bodies. Anything come to mind? <laughs> Just off the bat? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, 
Well, you're a kid at heart, Eric. And so, you know, as as you came up with, you know, to begin with, usually it has to do with some sort of excretory thing, oh, right. <laughs> you yes. know, that's going on, uh, whether it's peeing or pooping or farting or barfing or, you know, whatever it is, um, kids want to know kind of why stuff comes out of their body the way it does and, you know, kind of what's what's going on. And then the reverse is, you know, is it OK for me to put things into my body in different places, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with me putting this bead up my nose or, you know, this jelly bean in my ear or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, uh, cause we do see a lot of that. Um, but I find, you know, the kids don't ask inappropriate questions, uh, for the most part, they, they're you, not you quite capable me, of that. You? I do leave that for you. And you're really, really good at it. Um, Kids may ask uncomfortable questions, but they're perfectly fine. Uh, what, what does that mean, uncomfortable questions? Um, or maybe even uncomfortable comments, you know, more than a question. So say, uh, you know, a child comes in and they're brought in by their mom or dad. They may, I don't know if it's transference per se or just kind of switch things over. So, so the parents bring in their kid to talk about their nutrition or weight or something like that. And, you know, the little eight-year-old will say, you know, something to the effect, I mean, like, oh, am I concerned that I'm fat like mommy or daddy? Oh, yes. Um, I see. You know, and... Uh, and mom's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, yeah. you know, and they don't, they don't know necessarily, that, particularly in a private space like a doctor's office where we're trying to encourage them to be honest, yeah. that that might be inappropriate. You know, maybe they know that they're not going to say weird things at school or at the grocery store or something. Um, although sometimes they do, of course. Um, but, uh, no, they just, they're just more honest, uh, with how they're feeling about their bodies and their thoughts. You know, they're going to say that they'll describe their poop in much more detail than I ever needed to know about, you know, the color, the consistency, the smell, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and whereas, you know, adults are much more comfortable with dealing with, kind of their bodily functions. So, you know, I, I own up to my inappropriateness when it comes to medical discussion, but I think what I'd like to understand is how can we tap into the kid-like spirit when we talk to our medical providers? You know, how do we tap into some of that? Where we can be honest and be more preventative and avoid angina or possible other underlying conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think you just hit on it, and that's just trying to be as uh, as open and honest as you can in that relationship. Because uh, it's difficult sometimes for me to be able to help someone if they can't be forthright in sort of what's going on. I mean, eventually, we'll usually we'll get there, um, but it's extremely helpful if I know not only from what I can discover by doing blood work and a physical exam, um, but what they're thinking. Because, um, like I said, when we mentioned in the beginning. Even most physical ailments have a behavioral overlay uh, that influence them. You know, hypertension or high blood pressure often comes with anxiety or eating issues or something else as well. And, you know, any of them can. So sort of chronic physical disease is often linked with some behavioral component uh, that influences it. And so if people can come in and be honest to some degree of like, okay, I'm here, you know, I have this opportunity to share that I might not be able to share with others outside of these four walls. I'm going to take this, this time to be able to do that. Um, and the more open you can be, the more we can accomplish. Yeah. Because I want to go back to the Mr. Ed erectile dysfunction. 
I understood that sometimes the underlying condition is that, you know, your penis still works. It might be you're having some hypertension mm-hmm. or it might be psychological and you need not a pill. In some cracks, yeah. we need to probably figure out something else. Yeah. So uh, the, the evaluation for any number of things, including erectile dysfunction, includes finding out is there some uh, reversible you know, cause as to what's going on. And sometimes there is, uh, sometimes there's not. But if there is, then absolutely, you know, we'll focus on, you know, what that might be. And usually it's more mental health if it's a reversible cause. So if somebody's struggling with depression or anxiety or something where they, they can't sort of uh, focus on what they they would really like to be able to accomplish, whether it's sexually or not, um, then getting that treated is imperative. Yeah. Now, that said, of course, sometimes the treatment uh, can cause erectile dysfunctions. <laughs> what do you mean? Tell me more about that. Oh, well, uh, uh, the medicines that are often used for depression or anxiety can have sexual side effects. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I like, um, what is it Zoloft? Or Zoloft is one. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, hey, I feel great, but now I can't do you. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like uh, I could do you. I just can't stop. Um, really? Yeah. So it's what's called anorgasmia, which is the inability to orgasm. And what, so nothing comes out. You don't ever reach climax. Um, oh, and so Wait, you have no sensation of. Uh, yeah. Orgasm. Of completion. 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 Wow. Of a completing. Good. So, yeah. So um, it's not an erectile issue. They can maintain an erection, um, but they just really never get to the point where they feel like they can uh, orgasm. And then as we think about in the case of the, in the woman with it being uh, overweight, you know, as a, as a coach, sometimes that will come up with, with my client and it's often not the exercise. It might be just the eating routine. And so I'm wondering if that, that, you know, like you were saying, it's like that individual jumped right to exercise and that exacerbated. It's like, Oh, mm. I'm trying to exercise with this extra weight when it might be just a tweak in snacking or something else. Is that? Yeah. I wish it I wish it was usually a tweak. Um, it's something more. Tell yeah. Me. I mean, Trying to focus on weight loss in general is, uh, is, um, or is it up here? Is, I mean, a lot of it is. Yeah. Uh, it's, we will use different types of therapy to help people cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as, you know, other, uh, classic, uh, psychotherapy if there's other issues going on. Um, and a lot of it is nutritional education, you know, as you, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and not just exercise. Because once you reach a certain BMI, BMI body mass index, so which looks at your height versus weight, not necessarily the world's most and best accurate way to look at weight, but it's a general tool. Once you reach a certain BMI, particularly if your BMI is over 40, then physical exercise uh, can be difficult because uh, it's just painful to get your body moving because you're, yeah. you're too big. And or if you do do it, you're going to injure it. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, there have to be other tools immediately to be able to help. And whether that's really just to focus on nutrition and trying to minimize not only calories, but the types of foods that, that you're eating. Uh, in addition, sometimes maybe to using medicine in those more extreme situations to help people, you know, as well. 
uh, until they can re-engage with exercise. Because it is important for a number of different reasons to be physically active. Not only will it burn calories and help lose weight, but it maintains, you know, great cardiovascular health. So Yeah. As we continue this journey, I want to keep the humor going. I think it's important that we, we kind of have to laugh at ourselves. Obviously, we don't want to shame ourselves. But there's one thing I wanted to share with you, Robert, in that what sorry are you going to shame me anyway no 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 no, not at all. <laughs> all right <laughs> it's just there's been a quote that i have been thinking about ever since i started taking my health a little bit more seriously is a quote from share of all people the singer share actress what that you know what is what would you call that uh, multi-hyphenate um she said something like we care much more about what we put in our car than our body and i think you know she was being a, a bit sort of judgy i guess but the idea that we put, you know, really good gas or we put really good oil. And in the case of your car, it's electric. You know, we, we charge it frequently. You know, we're trying to be mindful of how we're taking care of the environment and all of that. But, you know, sometimes you just have to sit back and go, yeah, I want to put funny things in my body. I want to have that extra little, you know, whatever, chocolate or cheeseburger. But as we close up, what's funny way to think about how to take care of our bodies, but yet still be mindful of it. Anything? Yeah, I don't think that's an, an inaccurate quote. I mean, yeah. really, I, I really do think we probably uh, do as a society focus much more on, you know, taking care of the things around us, including, you know, how we take care of our cars and vehicles than we do ourselves. Um, and I think probably one of the reasons is, is that we can get away with it for a long time. Uh, when we're young, you know, we have this sort of sense of immortality that well, there's nothing I'm going to do to my body that's going to hurt it or kill it or whatever. I'm going to live till, you know, who knows how long, till I'm 80, 90, 100 years old. And so why as a teenager or 20 or 30 year old should I really, you know, give a crap at all about how I eat, how I exercise, whatever, because I can do whatever and look at me, I'm fine. Right. And then, you know, I'll have patients that come in and they're, you know, they're still chain smoking or whatever. And I'm trying to talk with them about, you know, not putting that type of stuff into their body. And like, ah, my mom, she lived till she was 98 and she was a smoker. So why shouldn't I? And they're like, well, you know, what goes good for your mom may not go good for you. And, uh, you know, you're just kind of rolling the dice um, as far as just increasing risk factor after risk factor. And eventually, yeah, something's going to happen. And, Often people will be like, well, you know, doc, something's got to get me. So, you know, why should I really care which one? I'm like, you, you probably do want to care. Some of them are not nice ways to go. Um, and nobody wants to have to be spending their final hours with, you know, a tube down their throat or somebody busting their ribs, pushing on their chest or having had a stroke and yeah. being sort of gorked out and not being able to talk or see or do, you know, interact with those that you care about. And so taking care of your body early on uh, with, you know, healthy nutrition and exercise and you know, making sure that any chronic illnesses you do have, like diabetes and cholesterol and blood pressure, are all well managed. Uh, really, it is the long game that we're playing. Uh, and that's what primary care and preventative health is, is about. It's long term prevention so that you sort of can enjoy those golden years uh, later on. And so trying to convince young people uh, to, to maintain that focus some of them get it, some of them don't, um, but eventually they'll come back and see me. Motivational speaker, Dr. Robert Clem, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, please continue to join us each week as we explore the body. We'd, 
what are some funny things about the body that interest you? And please take this in the spirit in which we intend it. That, you know, this is not about any one individual, but how we can have fun with the body while also learning at the same time. And Robert, any final words before we close out? No, I think it could be fun. Uh, this is, I think, an initial blush as to, you know, what we can what we can do. I look forward to, you know, focusing on specifics as we move along the way. And I'm sure we'll go down rabbit holes that might be fun and explore other issues and maybe talk with other people that know what they're talking about even more than I do. Um, so I, I look forward to it. I think we'll have a great time. Yeah, thank you. My name is Eric Moore and we'll see you in traffic. <laughs>